Numbers chapter 11. It's where we are this morning in our continued study through God's Word. If you recall the last study, it's just such a strange shift of gears. You know, I, I've taught, read and taught this many times, and I, I jumped into Numbers chapter 11 in preparation, and I had to remind myself, wow, that seemed like a really abrupt change. Like, how did we get to this place of complaint? Weren't we just talking about worship? Weren't we just, and then just suddenly you have this discussion that appears. And that is how it works. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among the people and consumed them in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire quenched. So he called the name of the place Tibera, which means burning, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now, again, as you're reading through the scriptures and you come to this, it just abruptly emerges onto the scene that people are suddenly complaining. And there's not really any cause for it. We're going to see the cause as, as we move forward, but there's not really any cause for it at all. You'll, you'll recall that they had the discussion about how the camp was going to move in order Judah would depart and then the temple would pack up and you know how if the, the cloud lifted, what their movements would be. And then it ends in chapter 10 by telling us that Moses would say that the Lord was going before them and that the people who oppose the Lord should get out of the way lest they suffer the wrath of the Lord in his proceeding before the nation of Israel. And then you turn the page and the people are complaining. It literally are left like, like this, like this inserted here incorrectly. How, how is it that we suddenly start this complaining? Well, as I said, we'll deal with that in a moment, but I want it etched in your mind that it's disjointed, that it, it just suddenly appears on the scene and, and it's, it's wildly out of place for these people to be behaving this way. This second thing I want you to take note of in that first three verses is the Lord's emotion. He's filled with anger and he begins to delve out physical punishment upon these people. Uh, you know, we get the uh, impression, right? So you hear things about, oh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. Uh, there's no changing in God, none whatsoever. His personality in the Old Testament is the same as his personality in the New Testament and vice versa. You, know, you look at Jesus Christ filled with wrath on certain occasions, right? He, he, he's pronouncing profound judgment upon the hypocrisy of the religious leadership in Israel. He's flipping over the money changers table. He's rebuking Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan. New Testament. You go to the Old Testament. The best example I can think of is God wanting to spare the Ninevites. Incredibly wicked people. God sends Jonah. Most of us 
are at least aware of the Sunday school account of how Jonah didn't want to go and preach to the Ninevites. We don't know why from those Sunday school stories, but he goes the other direction and then the ship experiences the storm and they throw him overboard and he's swallowed by the fish and he's spit up on the shores of Nineveh and he preaches to the people and they repent. The backstory is the Ninevites were especially wicked and in particular focused their hatred and their rage on the nation of Israel. They would torment and torture the people when they captured them. They worshipped a fish god, which plays into the fact that a fish spit up a prophet in their view who walked out saying, repent or die. You know, that'll, that'll cause you to, you know, change your attitude if the very thing you're worshipping starts preaching to you and telling you to worship a different god. In the process, Jonah has this conversation with God in the end when God sees the repentance of the Ninevites and he's no longer going to pour his wrath out upon them, Jonah says, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I didn't want to come to Nineveh. I wanted these people to be punished for their sin. They're cruel, they're evil, they're wicked, and I wanted them to die. That's about how we function, right? Even as believers, we tend to think that our enemies should experience the grace of God through fiery indignation. You know, somehow that that's the punishment that they're deserving. Not us, but definitely them. And that's the attitude of Jonah. And God points out to Jonah, there's more than 180,000 children in that community that are so little, they can't tell their left hand from their right hand. And you want to kill them all. Jonah sees the gracious love of God in the Old Testament. This is a balanced understanding of God right here. This isn't the Old Testament God that's filled with wrath. This is the God who just gave them all of the law, all of the ordinances, the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the articles of worship, the cloud of fire and the cloud of shade and told them how they're going to travel, and you turn the page, and they're complaining, and he is filled with wrath. And he begins to pour out his wrath upon the people. Emotional reactions are not sinful, okay? Paul tells us, be angry, but sin not, okay? So we don't get to start punching people and breaking things and lighting things on fire. That's, that's not what we're called to. Fun as that might sound for some of us, that's not actually the godly mandate here, right? But, but for us to have a, a very strong emotional reaction and perhaps even an outburst, an expression of that, is not ungodly. We live in a culture that acts like everything's supposed to be calm and placid and quiet. No, no. There are things to be enraged with. There are things to react to. If you're not aware of it, you need a television set. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you need to look around at the world which is on fire presently because of the sinfulness of our culture and its rejection of God. I also want you to take note of this. Where does the complaining begin? The outskirts of the camp. 
Notice that it's not in the center of the camp. Notice that it's not in the tabernacle. Notice that it's not in the people who are right around the worship of God. It's those that are on the fringe. Those that are on the outside. That is always the way it is. Right? Listen, you may not like to hear this, but you're in a fringe church. You, you guys are the back of the bus sort of attitude, most of you. You know, some of you not at all. But, you know, we tend to be the people who are on the outskirts, on the fringe, and God has caught us and gathered us up and brought us together. We, we are the island of misfit toys, you know. I don't know if you just, right? Nobody wants to train with square wheels, you know. That's just... <clears throat> We need to make sure that that fringe attitude departs from our hearts and that we rush into the center of worship. That we find ourselves close to that tabernacle. That we are that tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. I'm always very concerned when someone comes to me and says, now as a Christian, can I, and then, you know, fill in the blank. Is it okay if I do this? Is that, you know, as a Christian? If you're asking that question, guess what the answer probably is? No. No, you should not be doing that. That's that's probably the answer. I, I mean, I can't say that for certain. Uh, but generally speaking, as we drift from the Lord, these problems occur in our hearts. Uh, all it takes to drift is just to not be attached. You know, I worked years ago for a company that builds yachts around here. I've shared this story before, and one of the electricians needed to do some work on the navigation system and went out with a tender and got this yacht that's millions of dollars and brought it into the dock because he just needed to do some quick electrical work there. So he never even tied off. Because in his mind, he's just going to be going back and forth between the dock, still, calm day. No big problems came from it. But a whole bunch of people had a lot of things to say about it. Because at one point, he comes to the top of the deck to, you know, he's been stepping off the boat to get a tool and back in and on, back on the dock and back in. And he comes up and he's 20 feet away from the dock which is no big deal, fire up the motor and, you know, back the thing up and pull it back into the dock again. But there's also like, you know, a hundred boats moored out here that are all multi-million dollar boats that it could have drifted into. You know, this, this boat could have ended up, all it takes to drift away from the Lord is to not be attached. Okay. No matter how close you are, right? Oh, I'm here at this church all the time. I come around. Yeah, are you sold out, fastened to, locked down, and attached to Christ the way that you should be? Or are you just really close, bumper to bumper? Are you just rubbing up against? Or are you inseparable? Because it needs to be inseparable. The people on the outskirts of the camp begin. And what happens? The burning of the Lord. Now, listen, this burning of the Lord ignited the fire on the altar that would consume their gifts. You remember the first occasion of the fire falling? Should have been a celebration, shouldn't it? 
the temple is complete and they set everything in order and they're about to worship and the fire falls on the altar and Aaron's sons who are supposed to lead worship are supposed to go to that altar and retrieve coals from the altar and put the incense in and burn incense before the Lord as an act of worship. The smoke ascending from their incense burners represents the prayers of the saints. And instead, they scoop coals out of their own campfire, put it in the incense burner and throw the incense on it. And God strikes them dead right there in the moment. And rather than it being a moment of celebration, it's a moment of horrifying mourning. Because two of their most prominent leaders are struck dead because of disobedience. The fire of the Lord, which is supposed to generate worship and cause the people to draw close and fill the camp with a warmth and a joy, is now suddenly the judgment of God. And that's how it is. When we're obedient to God's word, we can read the most judgmental things in the scripture, right? And we say amen, and holy, and just, and true, and right. Oh, that is a good thing. But when we're disobedient, we have to see the self-application, and suddenly there's a horror involved. There's a terrifying element to the very fire of God, which is supposed to ignite our hearts and cause us to worship and to spread the joy of the Lord. Instead, we feel it tear at us. We feel it burn at our hearts and our minds, the conviction that comes. God's fire hasn't changed at all. God hasn't gone from being gracious and kind and loving to suddenly being wrathful and hateful and pouring out his vengeance. It's the condition of the individual upon which the flame rests. Are you there to be a candle, a lamp, to burn brightly for the Lord and declare the truth of the world or to be consumed and have all that needs to be destroyed, destroyed by the Lord in order to be purified. For us, if we're going through that burning and that terrifying destruction, there's a glory in the end, but it's a painful process. Here's a statement from the book of James, chapter 4, looking at verse 8. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And here's the statement. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. We need to draw near to the Lord. And if your heart is broken, and if you're filled with sorrow, I say embrace it. Embrace it. If God is chastening you, if God is disciplining you, purifying you, tearing at you, let him tear. He's gracious, he's kind, he's good, he's unchanging. He's not going to destroy you. He doesn't have a heart to ruin you. He has a heart to to make you more valuable. That's the crucible of trials that he puts us through. You put the silver in the crucible. Massive earthen vessel. Huge amount of heat and fire for a long period of time. And it burns 
all of the impurity out of the silver. And it floats to the top as dross. Ugly, black, burnt materials that come out of the silver. And the silversmith will skim that off the top. And he'll continue to just let the crucible do its work. More and more fuel, more and more fire, more and more burning and melting until he can put his face over the top of that and look in and see a pure reflection of himself. The metaphor is not lost there. If you can look over the challenges and the difficulties that you've been going through with the Lord, and you've got a very accurate reflection of yourself, which shows you in all of its ugliness, then you're being purified in the process of the Lord. The Lord refines those that he's going to use for valuable reasons. Verse 4 of Numbers chapter 11, here's an explanation. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Quite a statement, really. Now you know what the complaining was. The complaining was about the menu. There was no onion, no garlic, right? No leeks for them to eat. And they complained. Notice where the complaining began. With the mixed multitude. Okay? Exodus chapter 12, as the nation of Israel is departing from its captivity, verse 38, it says, a mixed multitude went up with them, meaning Israel also, and the flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. It wasn't just the Israelites that left out of the captivity of Egypt. There was a massive number of people who were non-Israeli that went with them a mixed multitude of people. God is not xenophobic. We hear that term being thrown around a lot. He's not a racist, right? He's not pro-Israel, anti-everybody else. He's very much into everybody else, right? Because he knows and has taught us that there is only one nation, there is only one people, and there is only one blood. There are no races. We are all one race. And that's not just God being blind. That's God telling us the truth of the human race. There's only one race. We're all of the same descendancy. We all came from Adam originally, and then God narrowed the funnel again through Noah's family. We've all descended from the same people. There's no call for racism, no place for us to discriminate against anyone. There's one mass and group of people. What he's talking about more than anything is the mixture of religion. These people do not worship Jehovah. They don't worship Yahweh. They don't worship the God of Israel. 
And Israel has brought them in and said, if you're going to be with us and experience the blessings of the Lord, then you're going to have to adopt our religion and our God and our worship. And they've reluctantly said, okay, fine. And they've gone through all the practices with the people, but now we begin to see their hearts are not actually aligned. They don't actually have a heart to know and worship and experience God as God has implanted in those people that he's chosen for himself. And they begin to show their separation of mindset here. Notice how they say in verse 5, we ate freely of these things in Egypt. No, they didn't. They were complete slaves, weren't they? They were beaten and brutalized and even killed by the Egyptians without any recourse. Nobody got in trouble if you killed one of these slaves. Oh, we used to be able to eat as much fish as we wanted to. Whoop-de-doo, you were a slave. You were abused horribly the whole time you were there. Isn't this the way our sin works? Right? We look back at the bad old days when we were enslaved to sin, and somehow we glorify them. You know? We exaggerate and lie, tell the stories as though they were something special. And we leave out all of the grotesque parts that are so embarrassing we've never told anyone in our entire life about how loathsome we have behaved ourselves. No? Okay, I'll make that confession. You keep yours to yourself. We glorify ourselves and we glorify our sin. And that's exactly what these people are doing. Oh, we had free fish as much as we wanted to eat. Yeah, so that you could get up tomorrow morning and make more bricks and build as you were a slave. And what's the big deal here? Why are they so focused on the tasty aspects of this? Now, if you're thinking savory, oh, well, you know, you got melons and cucumbers and onions and garlic and fish and, you know, a nice menu of fresh foods. Well... God's going to declare his menu here in just a moment to contrast that. How foolish is it of these people to have truly free food delivered to them every day? They don't have to work for it. They have manna that arrives every morning for them, fresh, provided, without labor, right? All they, all they have to do is worship God and they receive the things they need. What if I said that to you? All you got to do is worship Jesus Christ, and everything that you need will be provided for you. You say, well, my car payment? I mean, I can't say this. I'm not, you know, trying to tell you to leave and quit your job or anything weird like that. But Jesus Christ did tell us, right? They were complaining, the disciples, saying, we've left homes and families and, you know, houses and jobs and chariots and what do we have? And Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. We need to understand that what the Lord is saying to the nation of Israel, what the Lord is saying to his disciples, what the Lord is saying to us is the same thing, that if we will make Jesus Christ our one and only priority, if we'll make him our one and only priority, we won't have to worry about anything else. He'll take care of all of the other things. He'll make sure we have at least 
food, clothing, and shelter. I mean, if you've got other more spectacular plans than that, then you can take that up with the Lord. But he's telling us outright, if we will make Jesus Christ our one priority in life, he will take care of our basic necessities. We will not have to worry about our basic necessities. That's a wonderful promise. That's a wonderful promise to live on, to hold to. There are many things to examine within it, but how about we return here to where they say in verse 6, our whole being is dried up. Really? Isn't this the way our dramatic soul gets? Now, I want to draw your attention back to verse 4, midway through where it says they yielded to intense cravings. Now, this could most easily be rendered as they yield. Don't write it in your Bible yet, but it could be translated as they yielded to their lusts. Okay, but there, there's a description within it that in certain instances is not um, uh, sinful. Okay, so, you know, the intense desire for uh, a married person for their spouse, that, that craving uh, to know them and be with them. Uh, you have an intense need to eat food at times, right? Uh, you end up, you know, diving deep into the water and spend just a few more seconds than you're comfortable with there, and the intense craving for oxygen will drive you to seek it out. There are certain natural instincts we have, which when left unchecked become sinful, and we conduct ourselves in sin based upon reacting to the intense desire. These people have a basic need for food, and they've let it become sinful. They've let it turn into a thing that consumes them. And now it's literally destroying them. And they make the statement, we're dried up. No, they're not. Right? God is providing food for them every day. This is the way our perception works. Once the natural desire becomes an in or an unnatural sinfulness, and we begin to pursue it, then the natural satisfaction that should be provided for, we become convinced that it's insufficient. We're dying. You know, I'm going to die if I don't get this. I can't take it one more minute. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can, right? The question is raised in the New Testament. Which of you has resisted sin to the point of bloodshed? I can say that probably no one in this room has ever resisted sin to the point of bloodshed. Why? Because it never came down to that. It never went that far. We might have had a thing in our heart that told us, if I don't get this right now, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to die. 
we we get we t- forgive all the teenagers and young people in the room. Forgive me, you know. Just uh, we turn into a, a dramatic teenager. If I don't get it, I'm gonna die. You know, we just all of the drama in the world. Forgive me, guys. I just I was one behaved like that. We go overboard with how we have to have the thing, and we have to have it now. This intense craving, and and I'm going to die. Our whole being is dried. All we have is all we have is the provision of God. How foolish does that sound? Right? We're going to die. I'm dried. I can't just take anymore. All I've got is God in my life. You know, just really. That's it. That's all you got. Oh wow, that's horrible. I can't believe it's come down to that. All you have is the provider of everything. Wow. How are you getting by, really? My goodness, we turn it into such a load of nonsense. Proverbs 27, verse 20 says, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of men are never satisfied. Right? You read elsewhere in Proverbs that the fire will never say enough. <laughs> you know, you've never heard that. You know, you just keep loading the wood onto the campfire. It's a giant mound, and it, you never hear it say, "No, hey, stop." Uh, we first moved down here. Uh, I went to uh, <coughs> the town of Lemoyne and said, "Hey." Um, on a rainy day, could I burn a bunch of stuff in my yard? And they said, yeah, no problem. So on a rainy day, I went up and said, uh, <clears throat> i got this fire I want to start. And uh, you guys are all right with that? Yeah, they issued me a fire. It's like already raining like a little bit and going to continue through that. And the next day, issue me a fire permit. Sure. Go right ahead. I said, no, you got to understand. Like, <clears throat> see my big truck sitting out there? It's like three times bigger than that. And they were like, yep, no problem. Burn it. Every member of the volunteer volunteer fire department stopped by my house. And at one point I had the chief and like five of the members in the yard because the flames were out over the tops of the trees. My daughter and I were like 80 feet back from the fire at one point because we couldn't take the heat. There's no, there's no rain falling inside the fire. It's evaporating in a dome over it. There's a slight rainbow Amazing experience. And while we're standing there at one point, we hear this whoosh. And a ring of vegetation like 20 feet away from the fire burns off all the way around the fire. Starts in the back and just all the way around. It had dried all of the vegetation until it spontaneously combusts from the heat. So it is with your sin. As much as you want to feed it, it'll consume it all. We've stood in this room and literally said goodbye to people in their caskets who continued to feed their lives into that fire until their life was extinguished. The grace of God in their hands. And they're saying, all I have is this manna. All I have is this provision of God. (laughs) 
I desire the things of my sinful slavery so badly that I've got to go back and get them. It will destroy you. It's merciless in its approach. Verse 7, now the manna was like coriander seed and its color like the color of bedellium. People went about and gathered it and ground it on millstones or beat it on the mortar and cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. Their diet was cookies, you guys. That's what God provided for them a cookie-type cake material and wafer. Imagine how horrible it would be to just have to eat cake and cookies all day and have a perfectly balanced diet, to be perfectly healthy. God provides everything you need through this, and these people are like, you know, it was so much better when we had bad breath. You know pleasing your breath is once you've had fish and leeks and onions and garlic. You know, how people want to get really close to you. This is where their mindset was at. Sure, we like the savory thing, and you can do weird stuff with the explanation. Point is, God was providing them with something that tasted good, that had everything they needed in it, and what they were focused on was the things of their slavery which they preferred the taste of. There's an interesting summary in that, isn't there? Verse 10, Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And listen, there's a little bit that's missed in the English language there. Moses hears the details. And we're going to get some of that explanation. The complaint's already understood, right? The whining and the sniveling is already understood. Now Moses is getting the details of this whole thing. He heard the weeping through their families, everyone at the door of his tent. The anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? He's speaking of himself. And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom, close to your heart is the idea, as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which I swore to you and to your and to their fathers. You might want to turn to Second Corinthians chapter eleven, beginning at verse twenty-three. Paul talks about the struggles he went through as a minister, like Moses is talking about the struggles he's going through in ministering to these people. Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter eleven, at verse twenty-three. Are they ministers of Christ, speaking of the other people who are leaders in the church? I speak as a fool. I am more a minister of Christ, he's saying, in labors more abundantly, in stripes, literal whippings, above measure, in prisons, 
more frequently than any of them, in deaths often. He was literally under threat of death and stoned to death. From the Jews, five times I've received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. You might want to look into that and how they laid people down and beat their backs with wooden rods. Once I was stoned, literally pelted with rocks until he fell down and then a giant stone smashed on either his chest cavity or his head. Three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night I have spent in the deep. Imagine what that would be like to be alone adrift at sea for a night and a day. In journeys often, constantly traveling to minister to the church, in perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles and perils in the cities and perils in the wilderness and perils in the sea and perils among false brethren and weariness and toil and sleeplessness often in hunger and thirst and fasting often and cold and nakedness besides the other things what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. That does not sound like a Joel Olstein book. You know what I'm saying? Paul understood from Moses, from the Lord, from the ministry of Jesus Christ, that those who minister to the body of believers on behalf of God are going to go through tremendous hardships. And above anything else, they should, they should have a deep emotional concern for the body of believers. It's a tragedy that the church is engaged in so much self-indulgence today. Numbers chapter 11, verse 13, Moses continuing says, Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, give us meat as we eat, that we may eat, rather. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. A couple of things within this. Moses' need to care for the needs of the people is real. And he ends that statement by saying, if this is my job and this is what I am going to do, I need you to make provision for it. Remember that he said that. Because as we move forward, a couple of things happen as God is providing for the needs of the people and Moses' need for assistance in meeting the needs of the people. The needs of the people and the assistance for the needs of the people. To sidestep, there are a couple of things in the New Testament to look at as Jesus is ministering to the multitudes of people and they are all in need. There is that occasion where Jesus puts this same challenge onto his disciples. In Matthew chapter 14, at verse 16, Jesus said to them, the uh, disciples, they do not need to go away. 
you give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Jesus, caring for the practical needs of the people, when the disciples became aware of it, said to Jesus, you need to send all these people away because we have no ability to meet their physical needs. And Jesus said to them, you're going to take care of their needs. And they said, we have no ability to do that. He said, what do you have? Five loaves, two fish. You should know the rest of the story. He multiplies it and he feeds 5,000 men, <coughs> women, and children also. Probably around 15,000 people or better. Five loaves, two fish. Give Jesus Christ what you have and he'll take care of your needs. Keep it to yourself and nobody gets taken care of in the process. There's a, there's a big long story behind that five loaves and two fish. I'll just put a question in your mind. Who had the five loaves and two fish? It was a little boy. What are grown men doing with a little boy's lunch? Hey, kid, nice happy meal. <clears throat> Feel like sharing? Maybe these guys aren't as honorable as sometimes we think. If you, if you, moms, send your son, a little boy, as it's described, out with five little biscuits and two good-sized sardines, and then he comes home and tells you that he shared that with a grown man. What are you going to think of that grown man? What right do these grown men to say, we have five loaves and two fish, when it belongs to somebody else? A little kid, to say the least. Oh, the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm putting this in there. The scripture doesn't contain this. But did Jesus say to them, why don't you give me that lunch you stole from that little kid? And let me bless it so at least that little kid can have some lunch. And imagine how embarrassed they were after the lunch that they had borrowed was gathered up into 12 baskets so that each one of those apostles had a basket for themselves. That's got to be really humbling when you take what one little child offers and the Lord provides for you out of it. If the Lord can do that in those circumstances, what are you so worried about with your paycheck? What are you so worried about? I feel like I'm getting ripped off. I bet that kid felt like he was getting ripped off. Everybody got fed. And the Lord took care of his servants in the process. There's an interesting backstory there, isn't there? Why did Jesus do all of that? It actually began back in Matthew chapter 9 at verse 36. When Jesus saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. This is Jesus Christ's heart. 
He sees your struggle. Listen. Listen, church. This morning, Jesus Christ sees the struggle you're in. If you're thinking, oh, well, maybe he sees Pastor Will's struggle. If you're thinking, oh, maybe he sees that person's struggle because their conversion is so dramatic. Maybe he sees that person's struggle because they're so holy, but not mine. He sees everyone's struggle and he has compassion on that struggle. He wants to shepherd us. What do shepherds do? They guide and feed. That's about it, right? Guide and feed. Guide and feed. That's what you need. You need guidance and you need provision. Jesus Christ is here to do that. Now come some answers. In verse 16, So the Lord said to Moses, we're back in Numbers chapter 11, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them. Leaders. Bring people with leadership qualities. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting. He's not just looking for the old people. Go find some of the old people. Go, go find the elders and officers. Those who have respect amongst the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take the spirit that is upon you and I will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. Then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourself for tomorrow and you shall eat meat for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat for it was well with us in Egypt. I underlined that. What a blasphemous statement that is. We need meat because it was so good in Egypt. No, it wasn't. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. And you shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever go, come up out of Egypt? Oh, there are a few points there that are so difficult to take. This is literally where we get the statement of, you know, having it until it comes out of your nose whatever it is. And this is a literal thing that ends up happening to them. That, that's, that's, you're full at that point, huh? When, when you're, you're stuffed to the point where any amount of exhale can cause it to just you know, fly up into your sinus cavities. Man, you have overstuffed yourself at that point. That's where they're going to be at with it, which shows us What's really going on, doesn't it? They have no control over the appetites of their flesh. Because even when they get this, it's going to be a non-stop consumption until they're overloaded with it. And that's generally how lust takes over in our bodies. So the Lord has just declared two answers are coming for you. Moses said, I need provision for their food. 
and provision for their leadership. And the Lord said, I'm going to send you meat and I'm going to give you men to help you with this process. It was well with us in Egypt, they said. And the Lord said, no, what's really going on is you despise me. Mark that on your heart. The next time your heart is thinking, I'd like to go back to the way it was. You can put the equals sign right next to that that says, I despise the Lord. That's a heavy line right there to consider. If we're looking at the sinfulness and the bondage we were in as being attractive, then we are saying in our same breath, I despise the Lord. No, thank you. I don't want my name next to that at all. It's been, Unfortunately, it's been right next to that many, many times. I wish I could say I have no idea what this is talking about. Be a wonderful thing if I had a clear conscience from that, and I do not. And I have consumed until it's come out of my nose. Literally. Wish I had not. Moses said, The people whom I'm among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them? To provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them? To provide enough for them? I would remind us of what Matthew chapter 19 verse 26 says. When Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Both the statement in Matthew 19 and this statement with Moses, God is responding in the negative by saying, you're doubting me. I'm going to prove to you my capabilities. The Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? This is literally sarcasm. Literally sarcasm, you guys. Can you see the Lord saying, what, did my arm shrink up? You know, imagine, right? We say things like this, and we almost think of them as sinful, don't we? Oh, you shouldn't talk like that. God does. You doubt me? Did my arm suddenly shrink up? Oh, you're right. I remember all those times you were in need, and I couldn't carry through for you. You probably ought to ask the prophets of Baal. You know, speaking of the prophets of Baal, God's prophets speaking on God's behalf as the people of Israel are wrestling over whether they're going to worship Baal or they're going to worship God. The prophet of God says, you know, you probably ought to scream louder and cut yourself more. He probably can't hear you. He's probably in the bathroom right now. This is the type of sarcasm God will throw out. Because we, you know, there are no stupid questions. Apparently there are. Because God gives very sarcastic responses sometimes. If you know the character, listen to me, if you know the character of God, right, then why? Why are you doubting him? Why, why are you not trusting him? 
Here he is. And it's, oh, my arm must have shrunk up. I'm sorry. You know, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered the 70 men, the elders of the people, and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. Notice that. They never did so again. They prophesied to prove to themselves, to Moses and the nation of Israel, that the Spirit of the Lord had indeed come upon them, but they never did again. Why? Because the nation of Israel needs to continue to rely upon Moses singularly as the spiritual guidance of this nation. If these men continue to prophesy, prophesy then what you're going to see is, and it happens right here, people then begin to gather to this prophet and to that prophet and to that prophet over there. There's one voice here, and it's the voice of God. And it's coming through one man, Moses. And the Lord doesn't want to distract the people with a whole lot of messages. Bring them to one focal point. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad. The name of the other was Medad. The spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed amongst the 70, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So now we're going to see how denominationalism can take root, right? Oh, well, you got a whole bunch of, you know, Calvary Chapel guys over there at the tabernacle, but well, now there's a couple Baptist guys down the road. What are we going to do? So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. <laughs> How do you like that? Joshua just takes charge. Surely this isn't right, Moses. Let me just tell you how the camp should be run. Slow down, kid. Someday you'll be in charge, but that's not today. You'll have the reins soon enough. Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses returned to the camp, he and the elders of Israel. Moses has no problem with the church down the road. Moses doesn't say, oh, those guys. <laughs> Nobody should be listening to them. They have the Spirit of the Lord upon them also. There are, there are more than 30 churches in the greater Ellsworth area that all preach Jesus Christ. They all have their separate service to the Lord and to the body of Christ. And they are all good and wonderful churches. And I do mean churches. I'm not talking about uh you know, the kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. That's not part of the church. I'm not talking about, you know, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. They're not Christians and they're not part of the church at all. And I'm not talking about Universalist Unitarians, not part of the church at all. 
They don't hold and profess to the beliefs of the Scripture. I'm talking about churches that have different doctrinal uh, belief systems, different governmental structures. They're all wonderful parts of the body of Christ. And especially if they're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? We might walk into one of those denominations and discover, yeah, not so much here, you know, because they've departed from the tip, den, you know, the tenets of Christianity. But we should never have the attitude, right, like like Joshua does, and I, and and we can appreciate it, right, because Joshua's heart is, hey, only Moses. <laughs> That's a good thing, I guess, right. You know, is your heart this way out of some, time, some kind of loyalty to me, Moses is saying? Our loyalty needs to be to the Lord, not to our denomination, not to our pastor. It needs to be to the Lord. Now look at verse 31. Now the wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on this side, and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. Okay, all the athletes in the room, right? About two cubits off the ground. Per perfect striking distance, right? Right. <laughs> the quail are all like they can't fly. They're exhausted from having been blown in from the sea. And they land on the ground, but even when they take off, they just kind of sort of, you know, up and down. You know, I, I don't know if you've, you know, been impressed at all with the guys from Duck Dynasty, Phil Robertson. Phil Robertson is the one who said quail. Quail is the manna of the sky. <laughs> the filet mignon. In the batter's box, just about two meters above the ground. Just go out there and take your tennis racket. Come back with a bushel. You know what I'm saying? Just simple pickings. You want meat? Either side of the camp, what direction do you want to go? About a day's journey. You say, day's journey? That's, you know, quite a bit. You know, half a day out, half a day back, a day's journey. Right? That's perfect. Why? Because then you can leave all of the dressing out there. When you clean out the quail, you can just come back with all the breast meat. Leave all that needs to be buried in the desert out there. You don't have to even pollute the camp. You can come back with more meat than you could possibly consume. They don't have refrigerators. They don't have to. They have salt and they have ways of drying this meat. They're gonna, you're going to have quail jerky. As much as you could possibly want. You don't even have to, like, you know, try to find those steel or those lead pellets in them. You know what I'm saying? Any of you bird hunters that have been out there? Two cubits above the surface of the ground. The people stayed up all that day, all night, all the next day, gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered two homers. And that, you know, if you were... Studying that, you'd go, wow. More than he could possibly need. They spread them out for themselves all around the camp, drying the meat, while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed. 
the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a great plague, or a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kidroth Hata'ava. Sounds poetic, right? Like you want to you know, start that band or something? Get the t-shirt? It means graves of craving. How about that? Graves of craving. Because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. Note takers, you might want to write down addictions. A banquet in the grave by Edward T. Welch. It's an excellent book. And it's all about how we as a culture have become Kidroth Hata'ava. A place where we are consumed with our cravings and it is destroying us. From Kidroth Hatava, the people moved to Hezeroth and camped at Hezeroth. Hezeroth simply means yard, like we would say the doyad, you know. But it is also the idea of an enclosed place of protection has a surrounding or a wall around it, a yard that you can stay inside and experience protection. That's a good thing to go from the graves of craving back into the yard of the Lord. Stay inside his protective barrier. Stay inside the place that he has provided. It's quite a message, you guys, and I just want to draw your attention like I did in the beginning back to the sudden lurching change that goes from chapter 10 into chapter 11. You're going to worship, and here's your tabernacle, and these are your leaders, and this is how I want the camp to move, and this will be your pillar of fire, and this will be your pillar of cloud, and now everybody's complaining and death's in the camp. Over what? Lust. It isn't even lust of sexual nature. It's just lust for food. And it destroys their people. Needs to be that we would be men and women of self-control. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Following what the Lord has mandated for us. Rather than the appetites and desires of our sinful hearts. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are so grateful for your great love. And we do pray for our state and our nation and ask that you would protect us, Lord. Be gracious with us. We don't deserve your forgiveness as a people, but we're begging for it. That you would remove the wickedness of leadership that is over us, that is oppressing our freedom to worship and to know you, the freedom of our nation to worship and know you. And that you would restore the right sense of godliness and fear of the Lord, knowledge of your word, presence of your spirit into this nation, into this state, into our individual hearts. Accomplish your work in each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.